welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. Today, on this episode of the Artist Appeals, we're going to talk with the best-selling international author of the Zentangle series. Her work in Zentangles has been, well, inspirational. I don't know a better way to put it. She's got four books out right now. Tangled Journey, exploring the far reaches of tangled drawing from simple strokes to color and mixed media, to her book, 500 Tangled Artworks, a showcase of inspired illustrated designs, and then her two bestsellers, the bestseller, One Zen Tangle a Day, a six-week course in creative drawing for relaxation, inspiration, and fun, which has been translated into many, many different languages and is a huge hit in the Asian countries, and then her Tangled Art Pack, which is actually a meditative drawing book and sketch pad. And that is the companion work to go with the One Zentangle a Day book. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce you to the amazing and inspiring Becca Krula. Hi, Becca. How are you today? I'm doing good. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for joining me. I'm so glad we could make this happen. Becca, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, and I always start with a backstory. I always like to ask my guests a little bit about where they were and what they were doing before, before they became artists, and what kind of led you to this career path or this life that you're leading now. So where were you before you became this amazing author? What led you down this path? Well, I started out, I went to school to be a police artist, but I didn't- A police artist? I didn't last very long at it. I, uh, <laughs> my personality didn't fit. I was way too soft-hearted and it was just too hard to leave it at work every day when I left. And so that lasted about six weeks. And So wait, let me clarify. So were you drawing crime scenes? No, I was drawing, interviewing witnesses and trying to come up with the pictures of the person who they saw commit whatever the crime was. Oh, so, fascinating. But the, and those people are often in shock and you have to hurry to try to get it out of them. And at the time when I finished and was starting out in that career, they were also experimenting with computers, which mm -hmm. they eventually discovered didn't work so well and went back to using artists. But I soon realized that this really did not fit my personality very well at all. Mm -hmm. And so with my husband's encouragement, I left that job and I opened my studio and started teaching classes in mixed media at the local art stores and 
you know, picking up commissions where I could and students where I could to try and make a living as just an artist. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching at our here in Houston at a store called Texas Art Supply. And while I was teaching, this gentleman came and he stood in the back of the room and he watched me through the whole afternoon class. And I thought he must be, you know, like a husband or somebody waiting for one of my students. And I didn't really think too much of it, just kept going. And at the end of the class, after everybody left, I noticed he was still there and he came up to me and he said, I'd like to take you to dinner. I'm going to change your life. And I looked at him and I just kind of smiled and said, oh, really? I said, well, you know, I got a lot of kids to feed tonight. And so he ended up coming to our house to dinner. That gentleman (laughs) was the CEO of Polyform. Mm. And he had been watching me teach with Sculpey that day. And he liked the fact that I didn't use it like anybody else. And so he put me on the road and that's how I started out showing up at every independent art store in the country. Mm. And how were you using it? Oh, I would do transfers on it and I would paint with it. And at the time they had just come out with liquid Sculpey and I was mixing it with other pigments and making paint and painting with it on clay. And uh, creating everything from book covers that I would then teach him uh, medieval bindings to bind them into sketchbooks to you name it. But I Uh never did a cane. I never worked with canes with them because everybody was doing canes back then. Uh The transfer method that I developed used cheap gin or cheap, (laughs) which are the only two solvents I use in my studio. I'm kind of the, you know, safety health queen here. And Uh I'm a cancer survivor. So I'm really careful about everything that comes into the studio. And I discovered that with the cheap gin, it embedded the laser transfers into the clay instead of just on the clay. Neat. And so you get this very cool etched effect. And they can find a little, a little tutorial on that on my website. Oh, um, I will look up the link. You'll have to give me the link and I'll put it down below for our audience to check out. That's so cool. And that's how it got started. And finally, within a a year and a half, I was teaching at 47 stores across the country. Wow. That's a lot. Yes. And it meant being out almost every week. And I did that for many, many years. And then right about, oh, five or six years. Well, yeah. You know, it was four years after that, they called me up and said, we want you to start doing TV. So there was a, a show back then on HGTV called The Carol Duvall Show. And they asked me to start filming as part of the core. And so I did. And so then that built things and kind of built up my reputation and brought more opportunities. I bet it did. You know, it sounds like you were on the road a lot, and you mentioned that you had a lot of kids to feed. What was the biggest hurdle or fear you had to overcome in this transition? Was there like a moment or something that really just made you stop and go, ooh, how am I going to do this? (laughs) 
I think there was a lot of moments, but I was very, I think that being naive was a good thing back then. Yeah. Um, because it allowed me to kind of just find the answers as I went and not worry so much about it. I didn't realize a lot of times before I got myself going that, oh, this leads to this little complication or that little complication. But I think the thing that prevented it all from becoming chaotic or overwhelming was that my career just kind of grew. One thing led to another, led to another, led to another. So Mm -hmm. everything was just a little bit more than the last time I went out or the last thing I experienced. And like with the television thing, I was always very nervous preparing all the step outs and writing the script, et cetera. You have to write your own script when you show up because they have no idea what you, what it is or how you go about doing what you do. So you Uh have to show up with your script written has to be in the exact number of minutes has to cover everything that it's supposed to. And so you would work and do everything up to a certain step. And then you'd have to repeat that and you would have all these step outs so my biggest fear became, what was TSA going to do when they got inside those trunks? And we were, go- you know, would I arrive with everything in place to film with and things like so that? So you had to take all your supplies too. Yes, you did. And then you come in and, you know, they'll tell you, you know, we need to take it and get this in the first take and blah, blah, blah. And so, but once I got there and in front of the camera, there was so much going on. I never was nervous. So all the nerves were beforehand. So Mm -hmm. I soon learned that great packing lists, great checklists, and, you know, leaving notes on everything for TSA was the solution. (laughs) You know, sticky notes (laughs) on everything. And, you know, and that kind of became just the mode of operation of if it was new. That meant extra lists. It meant extra prep. The first time, if I was at shows and the first time I was, I had to bring a trunk show of my work and stuff. That was a big deal. Oh, well, I don't even know. And I've got to get in. I've got to fly in a half a day early so I can hang the show. I soon mm-hmm. realized that having a little map of where everything was going before I left was really important. So to make yeah. this all far more easier because it's one thing to hang a one woman show. It's another thing to hang a show and teach for four days. Right. You know, and so every time a new opportunity added to what I'd already, you know, accomplished or gotten comfortable with, I learned those checklists. I'm a firm believer in checklists. I'm in the same packing list that I packed with comes with me. So when I repack, I have it. And just little tips like that. So you have multiple copies of your checklist, and then you have a map of where you're going to hang your show. And do you keep these digitally, or do you keep them in a folder? I'm a folder girl. I keep, do keep them digitally. I always mm-hmm. have one of my devices with me, either the iPad Pro or my laptop. And but then you have them printed as well, right? Right. And the neat thing is, once you get into the rhythm, once that class is developed, that checklist is made as I'm developing the class. Mm-hmm. So for every time I'm going out, it's printed for that particular appearance. It's mm-hmm. dated and the store or the retreat or whatever it was I'm going out for goes up at the top, the date when I'm going mm-hmm. there. 
And I keep those lists. And if there, I notice something or something's changing or I want to add something, it goes on that, it goes on that list and it comes back with me. And then everything is adjusted from that. I've I like it. Yeah. Very organized. Yeah. Because important as class is going on, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to jot a note on a piece of paper than start typing in your device. And most of the time, my device is what's running the uh, camera so that they can see what I'm doing up on the wall and they can be working with me instead of having to come and surround me. And oh, great idea. So you trying to, your... Yeah, trying to remember what steps I started with. They can stay in their seat and be working with me. And I think it makes for a better flow for the participants in the class because they're not having to sit up there and worry and take notes. And they're just actually involved in the project and it works. Yeah, that's great. Getting everybody finished too by the end of class. Do most places have projectors or do you take your own projector system as well? No, I take that too. When we go out, it's quite, depending how many, how big the store is and how many students they can carry. Sometimes it's we ship in trunks. Sometimes I bring it in suitcases with me when I fly. A lot of times things, there's a certain amount you do ship ahead because mm-hmm. it, um, it just makes more sense. But I've been altering that a lot as shipping costs go up, et cetera. You mm-hmm. know, we're always having to juggle to keep that bottom line in the black. And my studio has been open through three recessions economic recessions hmm. and was able to stay in the black, but you, you're always coming back with these spreadsheets and reevaluating your bottom line. And how can I change this so that, you know, my kits are covered and the cost of shipping is covered. And how am I going to make this bottom line more secure so that the studio's here next year? And it just all builds and you, I highly recommend, you know, get out there, start small, evaluate every time that you go out and show your work, whether it's a pop-up, whether it's a class you're teaching, whether it's a show that you're in, you evaluate what it costs to get there, how you got there, what you worked for you, what didn't work for you. And you make those changes with each one because no two of us are ever alike as artists. And mm-hmm. Some people get very nervous before a show. Other people are nervous when they're preparing. Some people are nervous after it's all over. But if you're keeping your notes and you're keeping, you know, I keep these three ring binders and I have four of them for four different things. One is on my personal, when I go out, how do I represent myself as an artist? Your brand. That can be as simple as okay, when you're picking out glasses, I really have to watch out that they don't make my eyes too dark since I do so much filming. And we try to keep it so that I connect with my audience. Same thing with my classes. I have four filing cabinets now down in the garage. And there's one copy of every class I've done over my career. And they're full. Mm -hmm. But there is a consistent lesson from each of those filing cabinets full of classes. And so I have a three ring binder where it's divided out and it's, you know, 
just notes on working in classrooms at stores, working in hotels on the retreat tour circuit. We're, you know, just little things that kind of help you cover everything that could possibly happen or come up. Right. And so these are the, you know, my little like tools and you don't have to reference them all the time, but boy, when you do, you're awfully glad they're there. So I get my confidence because each thing you do and you accomplish and you get that finished and you got your notes on it and you know, you can do that. If you did it once, you can do it again. And we just keep moving on. So no matter where you're at, just make a goal. I'm going to do a pop-up. I'm going to audition for a show. I'm going to open a Facebook page and show my work. I'm going to open a what I'm going to make a website and show my work. Whatever it is, that's the first step to the, that leads to the next part of your career. Yeah. And just yeah. letting it bloom. If you're just showing up, doing your thing every day and you're you're putting it out there that this is what you do and and here's how you can reach me. Everything leads one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Indeed. That's great advice. Just take it one day at a time, right? Uh-huh. And you would be surprised how fast it picks up. So you started with Sculpey. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into Zentangling? When did you discover Zentangling? Oh, that was a long time later. <laughs> In between, <laughs> I started with Sculpey. And of course, I was the face of Sculpey back then. So when we were out, you know, like at national conventions, I would be there teaching for them. And that led to other manufacturers coming up to me and saying, oh, you've developed these products really well. We'd like your help in developing some of our products. And then it became, oh, in your education, we see that you have a lot of science background to the products that we use in the industry. Maybe you'd like to help us develop some new products. And so that's been a big part of my career. And Developing products. mm -hmm. And over my career. So cool. I have worked with over 60 manufacturers. So Wow. And I have patents in the industry. And I have, it's a part of my career I enjoy. But it's also a part of my career that it's, now something rather than doing it for the manufacturers, I do it for my own line. Mm-hmm. And what is your line? I have a line called Beckonings, which is inspires the muse in us, invites the artist, and equips the craftsman. So they're hard to find tools that are lifetime tools. So they're not a tool you're going to be replacing every year. They're tools that'll last a lifetime. I have a a couple of I call them mixed media pens or, and some of my clients call them paint pot pens, but Uh a brass pen and they come in two sizes and it allows you to use any paint or any ink and sort of like a fountain pen or more like a, a water brush pen. It's more like a, it's a gravity fed pen Mm. and it, um, where can I get one? Just email me and we'll get you all hooked up. <laughs> so, We're gonna put a link in that a link for our audience down below too. I'm yes, a big we we pen so, addict. Yes, and it is brass, so you clean it. And as long as you clean it, it will last you forever. 
Oh, brilliant. I love brass. I love natural materials. Wonderful. And I have even done commissioned art on cars using these. Oh. You can turn it, you can work with, at it with, with it at an easel. You can turn it upside down. You can, it's not going to fall out. They're really handy and just allows you to create whatever color ink or whatever color paint you want and to have that use the same mediums that you were using when you did the piece. So you have that consistency without, you know, the line you're drawing being too glossy. Mm -hmm. So then it stands out more than you want it in the piece. So you can get a consistency of tonal value. You can, they're very handy. So I have items like that, you know, that are hard to find and they have definitely their use in our certain world. Yeah. And do you sell these online? Yes, I do. And when I show up to teach and stuff, and again, they can refer to the website. Yeah, we'll put a link in the bottom for you. Yes. That's awesome. So in the middle of all of where I've grown to, about 10 years ago, I was out one of these national conventions at the time it was called CHA, the Craft Hobby Association. Yeah, I believe that's where we met. Yeah. And I had a class and it had about 150 people in it. So you're pretty much attached by a microphone that goes up, you know, the back of your dress and it's attached to the, <laughs> plugged into the wall and you get about 12 feet thing <laughs> move. And you're on a link. You're tethered. And, they, and at 20 minutes before we would start, they'd bring in these helpers and you would kind of go over how the class was going to flow. And they're the people who can, and this always made me nervous because I couldn't reach anybody in the audience. Mm -hmm. So I had to just trust that they'd listened well and that this is going to go okay. (laughs) And every year, it was the only time I would ever get really nervous. And one of the um, store owners that I knew from rep shows and stuff was sitting in the front row and she was drawing. And I said to her, Patty, I can't believe you're drawing. You know, I have such a hard time getting you to draw when, when we're, you know, together. And she goes, Becca, this isn't drawing. This is Zentangle. And she <clears throat> showed me how it worked. And she said, this would be good for you right now because you're nervous. And I said, oh, I'm always nervous when I can't get out there to help people, you know. Mm-hmm. So she showed me, gave me a little lesson, and then it was time for my class to start. And I was off and running and left there, and I was out for the next five weeks. And I was at that, it's about six weeks later, and I'm at the airport, and I didn't feel right. And so I said to my assistant, who was traveling with me, because it was a huge show we were going to, Art Fest, and I turned to her and I said, I'll be right back. I said, we got 20 minutes to board. Well, when they called us to board and I wasn't back, she came looking for me and she found me in the restroom unconscious. Oh. I woke up in ICU and I was very sick and I'd had some major, major surgery. So I was pretty much stuck there in bed because they had cut me all, all the way through my core, all the way around me. Ugh. So they basically cut me in half except for my spinal column. For eight weeks, weeks, I was stuck staring at the ceiling and not 
being able to move, I was pretty much left wherever they put me. That's where I was stuck because I had no connection to my lower and upper body. It was kind of like being a baby. Those muscles had to regrow together. and Right. Like free to call. Yeah. So I was stuck there. Well, I remembered Patty, little thing, and I thought, well, that's small. So, you know, it wouldn't require a lot and it wouldn't be as difficult. Those little pieces of paper would be easier to manipulate than a sketchbook or for right now and stuff. So I, when my husband came to visit me that day, I said to him, I want you to look up, it's something called tumbling tangles, I think is what I asked him to look. I couldn't remember the name of it. And so he came back and he said, I couldn't find anything called tumbling tangles. (laughs) So, (laughs) well, I know it's all over the net because Patty said it was. And so I kept saying, it's something tangles. I thought it was tumbling. So it took him about four or five days. He finally came in and he goes, it's not tumbling tangles. It's called Zen tangle. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so he brought me some pages he had printed out and found, and I made a little list of stuff I wanted. But basically, I just started doing Zen tangles on the backs of the papers he brought me because all I needed was a pen and a pencil and a piece of paper. So they're so accessible. Right. And I started that night and it is an incredible tool. It um, helps shift your mind into a higher state of focus. And it's a very calming. Also, I think it's an incredible tool that everybody should know before they (laughs) start kindergarten. And it's seriously that simple. And it's something you'll use the rest of your life. I can't tell you how many times like I'm stressed out because travel is not going well and my flight's delayed yet again and I've got to be there and I've got to be set up and teaching at eight o'clock the next morning. And, you know, I used to get all uptight waiting in the airport. Now I'll just pull out a piece of paper and calm down, (laughs) you know, and there's so many times where it, really is an incredible tool that helps you get through the day. But as an artist, the number one thing it does for me is it enables me to always be in that zone, in that higher state of focus. So, you know, very first thing when I walk into my studio, I pick up a tile and I start that tile. But the minute I feel, and once you start practicing Zentangle, you do feel your mind slide. You feel that, you feel yourself go into that higher state of focus. And once I'm there, I set it aside and I get to work. Oh, so interesting. I might work on the same tile, like start it, you know, depending how many times, you know, I'm, I have to stop like for lunch or for walking the dogs or, but every time I leave my work, Before I come back, I pick up that tile and I work on it again until I feel the slide. And then I know I'm back in the zone. And when you're in the zone, you're working a lot. You make decisions really fast and things just always seem to work right, right away. It's just that because you're in that higher state of focus, your your work goes quicker and it's more accurate. And, you know, you're more in tune with the piece as it's developing. 
So for me, it's a priceless tool. It's That's why I believe in it. I think that's amazing and very interesting that you use Zentangle to actually as a precursor or as a it's a warm up to help yeah. you yeah as a warm up to get into your other work that's neat rather than the end all be all it's the introduction that's really cool you know we used to just draw in our sketchbook to try to warm up but yeah. some days it worked and some days it didn't and you could never figure out why some days you would go into the zone and some days you wouldn't and then the founders of Zentangle, Rick and Maria, he used to be a Buddhist monk at one time and he was watching her work and he said he noticed that it was very meditative and together they worked on it and they realized it's repetitive pattern that shifts the mind. So when we're using repetitive pattern, that's what's putting us in the higher state of focus. Ah, great tip. You know, I use um, Enso because I love to Zentangle, but with a couple of kids, I never had the time to really get into the detailed work, which is what I love. But I had to change that flow. And so um, I sought out a, another Zen Buddhist tradition or Zen tradition, Japanese Zen of Enso. And that just requires one or two breaths. But yeah, that that is, I love the way you're using that as a tool to get you into the flow state and help you relax and produce more work. And I use that with the, the one of the reasons that that book, One Zentangle a Day, is been a bestseller in five continents and is in so many languages and stuff is, it was the perfect lead-in all these years showing up at all these independent art stores across the country teaching, most of my audience were people who came to art through the side door. Mm. They came to art be, for their sanity or because they enjoyed it and not necessarily thinking of it as a career, or, but just something for yeah. their, their own enjoyment. Yeah. And so I knew what they were missing in their foundation by having not had especially like our millennials, they never even had art in school, many of them. Uh-huh. And some of, of, you know, from the other generations that I've had as students, some of them haven't had art since fourth or sixth grade. Some of them, you know, it was just simple things in the first kindergarten, first, second grade. Um, so they're missing those foundations of art. And so after 47 years, I'm pretty familiar of what were those holes that you yeah. know, they were having to depend on their instincts and their gut telling them, oh, maybe you should do this. But they didn't know why they were doing it. So mm-hmm. when I wrote One's Untangle a Day, the goal was to teach them to tangle and to get in that higher state of focus. And then when I got them in the higher state of focus, let's cover the some of the foundations that you wouldn't get if you came to art through the side door. Yeah, I think I have your book. Well, I have several of your books. I know I have several of your books and you cover value and um, cross hatching and, and really, yeah, foundational work. I, I think that's brilliant. Design, um, you know, the different kinds of design theory out there. We've covered just, it's like basically a big first year of art school. Those huh. foundations that they are missing. And that's yeah. why that book worked so well. It was 
And then they kept using the tangles so they didn't have to sit down for each day and come up with, they were just working on the lesson using the tangles they learned at the beginning of that lesson. So it it made it a simple, no, you know, it wasn't overwhelming and they could get through these fundamental lessons and then take them to what they enjoyed doing. Yeah. Whether it was mixed media, whether it was crafting, whether it was, you know, they just wanted to do urban sketching, whatever it was, they could take that process with them to what they enjoyed doing. Hmm. You know, the appeal in Artist Appeals stands for art, product, presentation, educate, automate, or amplify, and, and license. And we've already covered you know, without me even talking about it, it seems to be this common thread of you make the art, you create product from it, you present it in a wonderful way, and then you educate your audience. And you've been educating all along. Um, and so that kind of leads us to the next section, which is automate and amplify. Now, you did that through television and through books, but are there any tips or tricks that you would recommend to people? in this new era of social media or, you know, what do you, how have you transitioned through those transitions? How have you moved through this this field of, of, of automating and amplifying? I think one of the biggest things I can remember, I was at national show and they had a speaker come in Mm -hmm. and this is in the beginning of social media. And they're telling us how we're going to have to have these, the blogs and the, websites, which I was already very familiar with having to have a website and, but the blogging and the social media things, and you need to be, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and blah, blah, blah. And I think at the time it was Facebook and I do believe Twitter was starting back then. Right. Anyway, I'm looking at all this and going, oh, I don't even have time for what I already have to do. The website can take up a lot of time. Oh, my gosh. You know? Oh, yeah. And I literally came to social media kicking and dragging my feet. I was not happy about having to be a master of one more thing to be out there working. And Mm -hmm. I soon learned that I had to make some peace with it, you know? And I really struggled the first few years. And then I was sitting here one day and I was like, Being my people have come to me through television and my books and feeding the website is number one. And then the rest of it, I'm not going to be able to keep up with the same amount of posting, etc. as the person who just stays in their studio each week. Because when you're traveling and you're out teaching, you know, my classes start I'm there at like seven, seven thirty in the morning setting up. Classes start at eight to nine. Yeah. And especially nowadays as I've kind of changed things. I have stopped doing a lot of the bigger shows because at the bigger shows we can teach a project, but we can't really teach more solutions that help the newer artist and, you know, get more in depth into the techniques or that we're covering or the processes we're covering in the class. Right. 
you can't really reach the individual as well, right? Right. And so when I, about 10 years ago, I decided I would rather do smaller retreats that were three to five days where they actually really could leave the retreat and have a really good grasp on what we were covering. You know, it would take them from the plateau they're on and kind of raise their skill levels so they could go home and then adapt those skills into their own style. So when I made that change, I was like, as I'm building the whole social media thing I was struggling with, and especially after I wrote One's Untangle a Day, I was like, oh, if they write me a letter about my book, I'm going to answer that letter. Yeah. And in the beginning, that wasn't so difficult. (laughs) Then I realized right before the book came out, I was touring in Europe and I got a phone call from my editor and she said, we have a problem, but it's a good problem to have. She said, we thought this book was going to be popular. So we ordered 10,000 copies, Mm -hmm. but we need 100,000 copies from the orders coming in. And it wasn't due out yet for six weeks. And so she said, you're going to be appearing in places where you're not, they're not going to have their books yet because it's going to take us a little bit of time to catch up to these orders. So we immediately went into a mode where I printed up this little tiny book that we gave out until the books were there. And I, we printed book plates that I could sign for them. And we made it work. But it was at that point I had this big aha moment of, okay, I will be on Facebook and I will post and I will post in the groups that I belong to when it's something, you know, but do I get to post every every week and every day? No. But what has happened is my audience is okay with that. As long as I'm there when I have something important to say to them that I know they're going to enjoy and find important, they put up with the not having to be so scheduled about it. Now, in the future, I'm planning on not being out so much on the road. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to having more time to being putting up more posts. And But you kind of have to make it fit into your how your studio works. What are your requirements? How does your day flow? How's this going to fit in? Because it can eat up so much time. And, you know, what ended up happening, and especially once the book caught on in Asia, the letter flow coming in and everything was like, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? And let me just say, though, I appreciate Google Translator. There's a lot of languages it's not very good in. Sometimes you're spending extra time trying to figure out what are they really asking me in this letter or telling me because it's so, you know. So the answer became, well, I would have an employee, and as I worked, they would read me letters, and then I would tell them what to write back, and they would be the, basically, I would be dictating to them, and they would be typing it in as I was working. Oh, yeah. So I could keep going with that, and, you know, I, I could be working and packing for the next trip out and walking over to the computer and looking at the pictures they'd sent. and. And that worked for me, you know? And so then I started taking some of that into my posts also. And I can dictate it to them. And then I come back and 
take a look at it, make sure it makes sense and all, and I've covered everything. And so make it work for you as you work. You know, I, I learned a long time ago that if I was trying to do it the way it worked for other people, that didn't necessarily work for me. And so Uh another thing is I'm a big storyboard girl. Mm. If I have, whether it's filming, whether it's a book, whether it's a magazine article, or whether it's my next class, there's a storyboard for everything I do. And I do keep those pretty much because for a long time, I used to use the great big newsprint sheets glued to the studio walls and stuff. And I learned it's just much easier. That is one thing that I really did shift to digital because Mm -hmm. you can get in and add things and, you know, it works really well. Those timelines, I save those. I have those on file because there's often a lot of brilliance in them because you're excited about the project and you're, it's new and, oh, and, you know, it's all limited. It's all only limited to your imagination. It's limitless at that point. And the amount of time you're going to have to get said project done and gone through. But it's an exciting time. And in those times, that's when we have some of our best ideas, I find. Yeah. And so I'm a big proponent of the timeline. It works really well for me. And you use a storyboard format, like a little thumbnail to sketch out your timeline. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. And it's also for me. So, for example, when I write a book, I do print out that timeline. And I do stick it on the wall. And on days when you've been in that studio at 7 a.m. and it's you look up and it's 10 p.m. And you still have to type in notes of everything that you've done for that particular part of the book that you've just completed in this very long day. At the end of the day, ticking that off on that physical timeline for me just rejuvenates Mm -hmm. me. You know, whereas if I look at the computer and say, okay, on to the next thing on the list, I don't get that sense of accomplishment or direction kept so much alive and in the front of me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as you're working, you can look up at that timeline and sometimes I'll have a great idea working on what I'm working on that day. And I can throw that idea on a sticky note and go stick it up on that timeline, but keep working. Don't let it draw me down, you know, that losing time, as I always say, don't get dragged down the rat hole of ideas Hmm. and you've got to accomplish work. And it's really easy, you know, because time is our most valuable thing we own. And most people don't realize that until you open your own business. And then you realize, oh my gosh, that time thing. And it is always, always the thing we have to answer to. Yeah. So they help us stay on track. They help me also with the time management, but they also help me to, because writing a book, a lot of books, we get six to eight weeks to write that book. Mm-hmm. And that's not a lot of time at all. And especially with an art book, which requires a lot of artwork. So it isn't a lot of time and you can't be second guessing and changing your mind and yada yada. So for me, those timelines, the really good outline. Um, there's a wonderful app I use. It's called Index Cards. Well, when I went to school, they taught us to write papers and we would have stacks of these index cards, you know, and <laughs> and uh, that you would use to finish your papers and stuff. That works for me. 
because yeah. every with art writing, art instructions, and art education books, everything is steps that need to be chronologically in order so they can mm-hmm. accomplish what you're trying for them to learn. And so the timeline works really well, as well as having all that outline in the first place. And it's the same for shooting TV or filming for online. You have to have that timing down and they allow you to know where you need to be at such and such a time. So if you want to be putting like a project up online and to get audience to come to your website or to come to you know, your shows or your pop-ups or your classes or whatever it is that that keeps your studio afloat and in the black, that timeline's your best friend. Right. Because it makes sure, A, when you sit down, everything is there and ready to go. You're able to focus. You know where you're supposed to be at what time in it. And you accomplish your end task much quicker with less wasted time. Great advice. So licensing and contracts. I know the business end of art is scary for a lot of artists. Do you have any standard contracts or any terms that you want to share with the audience or any tips or tricks about contracts you have to have? I've learned a lot over the years and that I have been licensing. Things have changed many times over. Every time our copyright laws change, that affects us right now because I do work over in Europe. My books are out in most of the languages in Europe. The changes in the copyright laws in England, and I had some commissioned work for a couple manufacturers this year already in England where that's been in issue. The number one thing I have to say about all this is once you are thinking about licensing or you're thinking about developing or putting a new product out on the market, you want to get yourself the best lawyer you can afford. Great advice. Yeah. That lawyer is there to protect you into a world that I learned a long time ago, get the best accountant I could afford. Get the best lawyer I could afford because I couldn't afford to be in business without them. Both of them pay for themselves. The lawyer protects my royalties. He protects my contracts. He protects my copyrights. Sometimes he goes after money that I'm owned on, owed on my royalties, whatever. I don't deal with any of that. If you're breaking my copyright, I don't deal with you. I send you one letter asking you to cease and assist, and it's pretty much a letter they wrote. And it says at the very end, if if you don't, the next letter will be from, and it says states who my lawyer is to expect the letter from. I'm not a really good, I would say most people would never be afraid of me. I tend to be very soft-spoken. I kind of am kind-hearted and I stay pretty calm, you know? Yeah, you're then tangling all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, most people, they think of me as like, oh, she's a neat artist next door. They don't, they're not intimidated at all by me. But let me tell you, if they push things too far and they hear from Malcolm, who is my lawyer, they pay attention, (laughs) you know? 
That's yeah. his job. My accountant, that's his job to make sure my taxes and everything that I'm getting the right deductions. I can't be a master at that. Lord knows that is where my least talent lies. And, but that's his job. And that's what helped. And they pay for themselves. Yeah. And in this day and time, we need that because social media has changed so much. And you need to know what your rights are as an artist and as a, and if you have, you know, you spin off products as a salesperson or as a manufacturer of those products, et cetera. And these people help keep us in our studios doing what we do best. And they take care of those things for us. There are many options out there that doesn't help you necessarily get your name out to find licensing, but that helps protect you once you do. For finding licensing, there's a lot of different things. There are licensing shows, et cetera, out there. But there's also some, some books. There is, like, for example, if you're a writer, where you can look up, and I will post this for us. Okay. We can refer to it, but it's the writer's guide, and it's for each year. Ah, yes, I've seen that one. And there's one for children's books as well. Yes, and so art books are listed in there. And it tells you, like, every publisher and who you would contact there and what you need to have before you contact that person. Yeah. Okay? Same with you can look up and find online and et cetera. There are licensing agents you can hire. And it tells you what cut they take and a little bio on each one, et cetera. So you know what you, to be professional, have to send and what you have to do before you ever send or show any artwork with a non-compete letter, et cetera. You can find all this out and you can find out the different agents. If you decide you want an agent, all you have to do is Google for the books out there, you you know, whether it's if you want to write author's guides, what is there out there for author's guides? What is there out for there for licensing guides? But don't go in it blind. Don't just go, oh, I'm going to show up at Surtech. I'm going to get, I'm going to spend $5,000. I'm going to have a booth and it'll all work out. No. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> it won't all work out. So I highly suggest taking in and reach out to other artists that you know have gone through the process. Yeah. Asking them what do they recommend. Or listen to this blog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to Excuse me, blog. listen to this podcast. Yes, go to your podcasts. Listen to those podcasts out there on licensing. Pay attention to people who've gone through the process because it is, I can tell you, it is an always changing atmosphere also. Yeah. So what do you want to see your stuff licensed as? I've had work that was reproduced by, and, you know, nowadays with so much canvases and stuff being done digitally, you get that licensing fee and they're buying it by the number of reprints. Mm. So talk to some of your friends who are artists, belong to those artist organizations in your area so you can find out about what's going on and what's going out there. And one thing I want to say, when you do approach and you are asking for help, be respectful. Don't expect them to give you all their contacts. That's not what this is about. They've worked hard for those contacts, you know, but 
do expect to ask them, where would you direct someone if you were starting out this way? Would you direct them to start looking for how they could eventually get to becoming licensed? And sometimes it takes just licensing something yourself and getting it out there. And then it brings the licensors your way. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways and paths to get where you want to go. Yeah. But I think the one thing that's changed the most in my career, and I knew this when I left my job as a police artist, I knew right away, I'm never going to make the kind of living I want to make just sitting in my studio. Mm. And I think that today that's still true. And whether you're getting out of your studio through social media or through doing pop-ups or for going out and teaching classes or joining all the art guilds and making your way that way, whatever, find a connection Yeah, where you're going to find people who don't pretend to be artists, but are really making a living and living the life that it requires to bring in that income. Yeah. And watch what they're doing. Pay attention. Yeah. Great advice. That's really a great way to to find your own footing. Yeah. So Becca, one last question. Well, two actually. Success. What does success look like for you? Like, how do you measure your success? Um, I know that we as artists sometimes stop and we, we forget. We forget to celebrate our successes. We're always looking to the next one. How do you measure success and uh, celebrate it? Okay. I have, I think one thing, if you are really interested in being an artist, you have to realize you are a constant changing entity. You know, it's just like our work. Our work is a combination of every piece we did before the one we're doing presently. Everything we learned along that path leads to that. And a lot of times we get in, like you said, we get into production and we get into this and that. And then suddenly we stop and, you know, we're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, this is success isn't always just monetary. I have had things that, yes, when I decided that I was going to instead of doing the big retreats, start doing these smaller retreats. Well, it doesn't take a great math wizard to realize, oh, if I'm only taking 15 students versus 100 or 40, I'm taking a pay cut. But right. you find other ways to make up for that pay cut and have feel a little bit more rewarded in the time that I'm spending trying to be out there teaching. Right. It came to a point where I don't want to keep teaching projects. I actually want to help them find the real answers that they're looking for and how I develop my path as an artist and my style and where am I going? And now that I've done all this and I've been doing all this for forever, how do I find my own work in this voice instead of, oh, that, well, yeah, you could tell I was studying under so-and-so here because my work looks like so-and-so. And here you can tell I was taking so-and-so's class because that work looks like that teacher. Yeah. So you find your success in your students. So you have to kind of know what makes you happy. Uh Uh-huh. What's going to keep the studio open so that you can be an artist next year? You know, we always have to be looking at staying in the black 
and what what's going to feed this if I want to take the time to be teaching this way? Where am I going to make up that income? Yeah. And yeah. if I don't want to be out 47 weeks of the year, now I only go out like 12 times a year. Okay. How do I make up that income? So you're having to constantly, I say we're chameleons. We're always having to make changes to fit our goals. Mm-hmm. You can't be out there teaching and teaching the same thing for 20 years. You have to evolve too. Yeah. Once a week, I have a meeting with my business. And one of the things I ask, what's really working for me right now? Every week. And I sit there and I talk. Yeah, nobody's in the room but me, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. I talk, I talk it out loud. I make notes on the wall. It's as if I was in a board meeting. And yes, it's just me and the two dogs. They listen very intently. <laughs> they're very good. They're very good at board meetings. They're good at critique time. They know the, they know how it all rolls around here, you know. But I seriously, what's working best for me right now, and how do I feel about that, and the energy uh-huh. I'm having to put into that, and do I need to make modifications? And if it's not going well, and that's disappointing for me, what could improve it? And if it's going well. But I don't like it. It's selling well, It's but it, it's not fulfilling. You know, my attention level to that is going to soon wane away. So I have to m- make some adjustments. So it's something that I will continue to have the passion to put the time into. Yeah. And if it's not, then I need to start right away. Well, how am I going to change this up for something I can be more passionate about? I love that idea of a board meeting with your dogs. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's great advice. You've got to. They're on my board. They're on the board of my business. The two (laughs) and um, it's a really important thing. And I always keep it for Monday morning. And I'm Ah, also looking at my schedule as I'm having this meeting and I keep it always to 40 minutes Mm -hmm. and then whatever's left in the air, well, maybe I might come back to it a couple evenings that week, or maybe it'll get left till the next Monday morning, depending on how the week's rolling. But that's interesting. You time it and everything. Everything. It is treated as if I were Microsoft. Well, you take your whole business very seriously. I respect and admire that. And I think it's great advice for all of us to try to emulate. Well, that business is 30 plus years old. And I think you have to take it that serious to have longevity. Yeah. Especially in it. Art is an ever shifting. That's another reason why we have to shift so much. Yeah. You know, it's. Field is constantly changing. It is. It truly is. And the other big thing I think it's really, really important during that business meeting is to look at, you know, that old saying, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. I feel That's especially true for us in the art world. Yeah. I'm most comfortable with at least four venues of income coming in. That way, you know, there are months classes don't sell well. Christmas, nobody wants to be taking classes at Christmas. Right. I've got friends and family. And next time, nobody has time for class. You know, those are months where we don't do well. December and April. Yeah. Same with... For example, if the galleries, 
galleries don't do well in April. I've never had a good month in April. But October, in the fall, and for whatever reason, early, late spring, early summer, they do really well for me. Yeah. Also, I have found my niche is, I think, working a lot on the road. And it always had to be portable. So for some reason or another, I've been known mostly for small work. Even though I have done murals and big pieces in my career, I do far more smaller work than I do larger work. Mm -hmm. I like small. I have tiny hands. I'm a short person. I'm not, you know. (laughs) Same. Yeah. And so I've always been attracted to small and the detail and just drawing them in and saying it, making a little that makes a story for the viewer. You know, when um, for years I've taught journaling classes and and urban art classes. And my big thing is don't write a word across it. You're not an ad campaign. Let your viewer have their own story from what your work is because they've had their whole path before them and they may not relate to that word you put on the front of that piece of art. But if you let like them have their own story and look into that piece of art and relate to it from their own path, then mm-hmm. they, they'll they take that moment to pause. Yeah. I've always been very insecure about adding words to art um, because I'm not a, I've always felt I'm not a topographer. I'm not a letter artist. There are some people that are very, very good at that. And yeah, I don't want to put my own on, on somebody else's, you know, small works are intimate. Right. They are. And like, what's in your journal? Yeah. You can write whatever you want over it. You know what I mean? Because that's for you personally. I'm talking about the pieces that, you know, we're going to a gallery with and, or, you know, trying to get into a gallery or you're doing a pop-up show, have pieces that the viewer can have their own story with. They can have their own relationship. Believe me, those are the ones they like to take home. Yeah. Becca, we got to talk real quick. Um, before our last question about your gallery work, you know, we've talked about your books and your teaching and all that great stuff, but we haven't really talked about the fact that you're also a fine artist and you do gallery exhibits. Do you want to just touch on that a little bit? Your work is smaller, it's intimate, it's, it's intricate. Yes. Detail orientated. I tend to be, you know, when our viewer walks up to our art, basically we're bullied by our subconscious. And your subconscious in split micro parts of a second decides whether it likes it or not and whether you're going to take the time to look at it and especially if we're tired, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So when I started doing shows and there's times in my life of my career where I'll do more gallery shows and have more galleries than other times. And how do you select them? How do you find your galleries? So before I even am selecting the galleries, I'm selecting, do I need one right now? Okay. Okay. If I'm doing a lot of shows and I'm out, I don't have to have a gallery because my clients are seeking that work. So at those times, I'm not sending so much to galleries because I don't have to split the income then from the same. Gotcha. Pop-up shows go with me when I'm on the road and I don't have to split then what I make off my art. I still keep a couple galleries in two cities that, mm-hmm. um, and I always say this, when you're looking for a gallery, 
before you ever say to them, oh, I'm looking for a gallery, you go to those galleries and you watch how do they treat you as a customer coming in. Do they know who their artists are? Are they telling you about their artists, their statement, their mission statement, what these artists stands for? What's their story? Or are they just, hi, come on in and, you know, no interaction? Because really and truly, your gallery is your, that's your salespeople. Yeah. Or they represent you when you're not there. So you got to like how they do that. And mm-hmm. make sure you check that out before you sign a contract. Yeah. Yeah. Then when you decided that, oh, I like how they do business. And if you happen to know some of the artists in that gallery, ask them, how do you like doing business with this gallery? Yeah. Check it out in the Better Business Bureau. Check it out. Don't just right. go in blind because, boy, that'll bite you in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> And then you'll be calling that lawyer that we talked about. (laughs) Right, right. I think the last thing I have to say about the whole gallery experience is give yourself enough time. So you, you contact that gallery. Make sure before you contact that gallery that you've got enough of a collection so that once that non compete has been signed, that, you know, They're not going to give the ideas of your work to somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. And you get those letters, again, through your lawyer, or you can even get them online. And there's even several publications where it's all different contracts. Just make sure that what you're picking up off the line or through some of those books works for the state you live in. Because all of our states treat sales and all of that differently. So just make sure you know, that the guidelines are going by work for the state you live in. Good advice. Great advice. All right. And so our last question I love to close with is, do you have any books that you recommend? You mentioned the artist market prior, but you know, it doesn't have to be about art. It doesn't have to be about business. Is there a favorite book that you would give as a gift to um, another artist or something that is really just influenced you? Oh my gosh, to pick one would be, I'm a book person. (laughs) Me too. You know, I'm one of those people I've never seen the Game of Thrones. I am not a TV person. I am a book person. But there is, there's several books that I have and they tend to be reference books that, and some of them are even out of print, but they're that valuable that I will Mm -hmm. continue to, um, What's the first one off the top of your head? I'm trying to remember. I just went blank on its title, so I'm going to open up the the uh, library door and tell you its name is... Come back. Come back, Becca. I'm coming <laughs> back. Hang on. This will be part to be edited. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> it's checked out. Living... Okay. I got it. I'm back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. If I had to pick the one, the number one is the definite guide to color palettes through the ages. And it's called Living Colors by Margaret Walsh. And when you open up this book, it's two books in one. One 
on the right side, in it's in a ring binder, are all of the color palettes from every art movement and artist up to when it was written. So every master's color palette and every art movement's color palettes are in here. And this was, it's copyrighted 1995. So this is a book, you have to find it through, you know, half price books or the various books that are out people who handle books out of print. This book, for example, I'm just going to open it up, and I opened up to the 40s, Color Rationing. has the whole palette of the 40s. It breaks down why that was the palette of the time, and it goes into complete detail. This is an incredible resource. Mine is duct taped together and beyond beat up. And it's still a book I reach for, oh, I would say five or six times a month. Neat. I got to go find me one of those. I have a friend, uh, Michelle, that owns the Cupboard Maker books down the way from me. She's got 100,000 books on the shelf, another 100,000 online in the back room. And I'm going to have to go dig for that one. You do. It is an incredible book. And there isn't anybody that I have given it to or recommended it to that hasn't come back at me and said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I could just get lost in that book. Tell us the name and the author one more time, and I'll put it in the bottom for you guys too. It is The Definite Guide to Color Palettes Through the Ages. And the front of it is called Living Colors, and it's by Margaret Walsh. And the publisher was Chronicle Books. Fabulous. Well, Becca, this has been phenomenal. I have just so enjoyed talking to you. I always enjoy talking to you. So informative. I want to thank you. Well, I have enjoyed it also, and I love hearing from any of your listeners. And if they have any questions, feel free. We'll have my email down below. Oh, and you'll have you'll you'll dictate to them. <laughs> They'll get an actual dictated response, right? (laughs) Well, it depends on the day. I have to say, our friends over in Japan, for example, they're very serious about their art and their Mm. home. And they, I hear from, that is the one country I get the most mail from. I hear from them so much. But, you know, so there's times where I can get 4,000 emails from one area wow. in one day, but we get through them all. And then there's other times where there's 20 from all over the place. And, you know, I don't need help on those days. So it uh, depends on your luck of the draw of the day, but it's still me. And, you know, you can tell by when you read. No, I, I think a dictated answer is just as good because it's the way you speak. It is. It is. And they know that don't you edit what I'm saying. You just put in what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And that way we can keep on it, especially when we get the heavy hits, you know? Yeah. You know, little tip or trick is if you don't have an assistant, you could actually use a voice to text app like Dragon or Dictate. So there are some apps that will actually convert your voice and dictation to text. Of course, you know, it doesn't always get it perfectly, especially if you have uh, colloquialisms or things like that but that's a great little tool that we have available us to now it is i kind of stayed away from them because suri and i don't always <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. well. <laughs> right right 
So, but thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. And this is a wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Becca. And I want to thank everybody for joining us. Check out the artist appeals and Becca Crowley, the artist of Krahula. All right. I'm going to stop the recording. One last thing I'd like to say to all your listeners is remember, keep creating. It will always change your world. Excellent advice. Thank you. Are you a teacher or a homeschooler or crafter? Perhaps you have kids that you like to share your love of nature with and explore the outdoors and have adventures with. Perhaps you like to go out and find bugs and frogs and turtles and snakes and bird's nests. Now you can bring that adventure inside and extend your adventure with your kids or your crafts with a craft project. Check out iConnect Crafts. That's E-Y-E, as in an eyeball, connectcrafts.com, where you can find over 70 different animals, all designed by yours truly, called the Totem Poppets. The Totem Poppets are fun, movable animals. You can paint them, you can stamp them, you can zentangle them. They can take anything you can throw at them, from crayons to watercolors. They're movable. Everyone has joints. You put them together with mini brads. We have six different colors of mini brads. You can choose blues, purples, greens, gold, silvers, whites, whatever you like, and you assemble them and then you can play with them. Stick them on a chopstick, make a play, put them in an art journal, a scrapbook, a greeting card, use them in a project for school. So check them out at iConnectCrafts.com. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something, too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's the artist. Appeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S dot com. Thanks and have a good one.